We have a new report launching soon. It's a candid view of the very real challenges facing banks right now, from technology to new competitors to culture, and how they're all interlinked. We explain the intricacies of banking technology in simple terms, but without dumbing it down. And we give answers on the way forward. To get a link straight to your inbox as soon as it launches, please make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter. That's Fintech in 5. And you can head to bit.ly forward slash 11FS subscribe to do that now. and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Adam Davis. In today's episode, we want to talk about sustainability. We covered this topic a while back on the podcast on episode 466, if you've got good memories. It was around October, November time. At that point, we focused on what products are available for climate aware customers. Now on this podcast, we want to look a little bit bigger and broader and talk about what the financial industry is currently doing, where we can do more and what a sustainable approach might be for hiring in the future. So talking a little bit as well about talent. Uh, To delve deeper into this, I'm joined by some awesome guests and thanks to these three for coming on. First of all, joined by Matt Rees of the European Investment Bank and the host of the Climate Solutions podcast. Matt, how are you doing? Very well, thanks, Adam. Good to be with you. It's good to have you on. Where are you calling in from? Luxembourg. That's where the European Investment Bank is. Ah, okay. Fine. So you're based abroad. Lovely. Okay, good stuff. Next, we have Georg Ludwigsen, who's the CEO and co-founder of Meninga. Georg, how are you doing? Doing great. I'm a fan of the show. Happy to be here. Ah, pleasure to have you on. Uh, is it possible you could tell us a little bit about Meninga for those who haven't heard of you? Sure, if my voice uh, holds up. <laughs> Meninga is a software company and an innovation partner to banks. We were a pioneer of personal finance management inside digital banking, and uh, we work with many of the leading banks across the world on upgrading their digital banking user experience, help them challenge the challenger banks, and basically evolve their digital bank more into a advisor or a coach-like user experience. On the sustainability front, one of our latest products is Carbon Insights, helping banks help their carbon-conscious customers understand and manage and do something about their carbon footprint based on their spending and transactions. And um, we have been blown away by the reaction this product is having. It's already on track to be one of our best sellers and we're involved in several projects. So um, it's coinciding with what we perceive to be a kind of a green wave in financial services. Mm. So um, yeah, excited to talk about that today. Absolutely. We'll come on to a lot of those points in a sec. Finally, Claire Riley is joining us, a Chief Engagement Officer at Pension B. Claire, Pension B has done all sorts of really cool stuff recently in this specific space without delving too deep into the roadmap because we'll come on to it in a bit. But I suppose what's been at the forefront of this change within Pension B very recently and I guess how excited are you about the opportunities in this space going forward? Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Very pleased to be here. Yeah, so, I mean, look, I think we've very much been driven by our customers at Pension B. We've very much been driven by what our customers are telling us. And, you know, back in 2019, you know, a strong number of them were telling us they no longer wanted to engage with oil companies, for example. So we responded to that. And likewise, with our colleagues as well, like our colleagues have told us very strongly that we need to be doing certain things in the business. And we're very proud to be kind of 
a corporate role model in some ways for some of those things that I'm sure I'll touch upon later on in the podcast. Cool. Matt, I want to circle back around to you because I'm going to try and bounce some of these stats off you for the intro because I've got a list of stats here that I'm going to go through. Your Climate Solutions podcast, very cool. Can you talk a little bit about that? And as I delve into some of these stats, obviously, if I'm saying any of them incorrectly or you've even got better ones, then please trump me. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Well, Climate Solutions, it actually grows out of the fact that the European Investment Bank, which is owned by the member states of the EU, is the EU's climate bank. So, you know, last year we did 24 billion euros of loans and and other business around climate. So, you know, that's a a huge amount. It's about 37% of what the bank does. As I said, it's a huge bank. It's 72 billion last year. But that's really a priority. And one of the key elements, as well as making loans to startups and huge wind farms and so on, which the bank does, is also to try to get a dialogue going and to inform the public about what we can do for climate action. And so Climate Solutions grows out of that. It's We're in our second season at the moment. The first one won some prizes. It was essentially looking at different aspects of investment in climate. So everything from you know urban development to mobility and development in the rest of the world outside the EU, developing countries. And each one of those episodes was giving people two or three specific things that they could do in their life to, for example, help reduce greenhouse gases with their travel or with the food that they consume, for example. And in the current season, which I'll talk about a little bit during this episode, We've done a climate survey every year for the last three years. This is the first time we've turned it into a podcast. And essentially, we did a survey of 30,000 people in the EU, the UK, the US, and China, asking them, mostly this year, how has COVID affected your perception of climate change? And it's, it's got a lot of interesting results. Yeah, that is interesting. We'll come back to that, certainly. And we'll do a link to your podcast in the show notes when this goes out as well for those uh, who want to listen to it. It's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I'm just going to throw out some stats, a few macro trends. Some of these are from Switzerland's oldest asset manager called Lombardo Deer, who have pivoted actually pretty massively into sustainable investing, asset management, etc. in the last few years. So some of these are like way broader than financial services, but it gives people an idea of, I suppose, the scale of the problem. There's been a 68% decline in animal populations in the last 46 years. 80 billion pounds, as in, that's, I'm assuming that's weight rather than the cost, but 80 billion pounds of food is thrown away each year in the US. A fascinating stat, 92% of time a car sits unused. That was like another one I saw the other day with a power drill. Apparently, you only operate a power drill for three minutes in its entire life that you have it, which is crazy. But there you go. A few things that are going on at the moment within the financial services industry, which we can pick up on. In 2020, a regulation was passed in Europe that requires companies subject to the European Directive on Disclosing Non-Financial Information I'll let that sort of settle in, to report their percentage of turnover, investments and operating costs coming from activities deemed sustainable. And in 2021, so December of this year, compliance becomes mandatory for all European companies. And that is also supported by sort of, I guess, wider geographic targets. Uh, The EU, for instance, are looking to reduce their carbon emissions by 50%, and that's by 2030. 
I think we've all probably got an idea of how well they're doing with that or not not doing well with that, which we can come on to a sec. And then eradicating them completely by 2050. The UK also, actually, I think before the EU did it, the UK said that they were also looking to become carbon neutral by 2050. And it's in the headlines this week as well. Prince William this week at an IMF meeting urged banks to invest in green to protect the environment. He was talking a lot around reforestation, sustainable agriculture. HSBC this week said that they're going to stop financing coal projects across the EU by 2030 and in all other markets by 2040, which is pretty cool. Extinction Rebellion are back. They went somewhere. They went quiet for about three months. Now they've come back into the headlines. They attacked the Barclays headquarters in London, I think last week, over Barclays financing for fossil fuel companies. And remember, I guess, you know, headline statistic and one that Claire, I might pick up with you in a sec is that a third of all global carbon emissions comes from 20 companies. And those 20 companies, including things like BP, Shell, etc., all massively feature in, you know, pension pots, in, you know, uh, SIP pots, etc. So where the institutional money goes, I suppose, historically, has had a pretty negative effect on the environment. Matt, I'll start with you. I guess, given all that information, all those statistics, I guess as a, as, as a temperature test, how do you feel we're doing as a financial industry at the moment? And are you, I guess, uh, ashamed, worried, or actually relatively hopeful about the contribution that we're making to sustainable efforts? I'm quite optimistic, actually. You know, if, if we just look, first of all, at some of the things that are signals to me, just from the, the activity of, of the European Investment Bank, that there is an appetite for this kind of investment. About 12 years ago, the European Investment Bank invented green bonds. That's now a $1 trillion market. So that's clearly a sign that there's really an appetite there. But something even more interesting is that a year and a half ago, the bank produced its first what's called a sustainability awareness bonds. Green bonds are all, they support investments that are made in renewable energy, energy efficiency, you know, sustainable transport and so on. Sustainability awareness bonds expands that and takes it into investments in water anti-pollution processes, education, sustainable uh, health in developing countries, those kinds of things, which are all linked as well to, to what we're talking about here. And the first one of those, just to give you an example, the bank said, okay, we want to sell 500 million euros of this bond. And the financial community came in and said, we'd like to buy a billion euros of that bond. So in other words, it was double what we thought the market would would take. There's that demand for it. And I think that's a, a real key that people are starting to get used to the idea of valuing sustainability. Because that's really where we've been in the past. Sustainability has been something that's nice to have, you know, like not destroying the climate. Well, that's great as long as I still make 10% on my investment or something. Mm. Now we've gone past that. Now you can't have it as either or. You have to have sustainability as part of it. And when you're throwing out those statistics like the you know the 68% decline in the animal population, people are starting to get used to the idea that ecosystems have an economic value. You know, if you if you go and you talk to your old uncle who says, Yeah, it's nice to look after the bees, but only if it means that we can invest and make the money that we need to make for the economy. Mm. And we probably can't, so we should forget that. It's not true. You know, the value of our ecosystems to the world economy is estimated at $125 trillion a year. It's seven times the GDP of the United States. Yeah. So that's 
something, right? That's not nothing. And it's something that, first of all, I think people are getting used to the idea of valuing it, getting used to the idea of having it be part of every investment. That's certainly what the European Investment Bank is doing. And insisting on their partners operating in a similar way. Yeah. And it does feel like the pressure almost is being applied from all sort of different angles. So you've obviously, you're very much in, from an institutional perspective, being almost, the, you know, leaders, but then also the benefactors in that, as you say, you know, with with, with the issuing of, of, of green bonds and such a significant uptake. And Claire, I guess you're sitting from a B2C perspective, looking at what, are, you know, end users, if you like, and I suppose the shift in mentality that, you know, Gen Z, Gen Ys have got, which is, you know, actually, we want to see some form of sustainable returns from what we're investing. And I just wanted to come to you a little bit because you've got two types of VSG investments that you've created in Pension B. One is around being ethical. I'm probably going to say this wrong, so please correct me. And one's around ESG. I just wondered if you could sort of uh, differentiate the two. Yeah, so we actually have three responsible plans. Oh, man. I'm, I'm quite <laughs> I'm quite cautious of the word ethical. I mean, ethical means different things to different people. So we have three responsible plans. We have the future world plan, which is, yes. um, we call it our engagement with consequences plan. So that's voting and selling. So that's putting pressure on companies to change and to and be more transparent around carbon emissions. And if they don't do that, you sell the assets. Then we have another responsible plan that we introduce at the end of 2020, directly as a result of customer demand from customers who just did not want to engage with oil companies anymore. Yeah. They said the time for engagement is over. We've tried to engage with them for years and all we see is an increase in production. And so we introduced that plan. And that's fossil fuel free and that's tobacco free as well. So we got that one. And then our third one is a Sharia plan. So that's for, yeah, for customers who want to invest in loan their faith. I mean, look, I think, okay. I think just to, to answer the question about kind of the market. I mean, I think, look, there's so much goodwill at the moment. Everyone is showing so much willing. I feel like, you know, there's not a day that goes by without another big corporation going net zero or, or saying that they're not going to finance fossil fuels anymore. And I think that is fantastic. And I think the goodwill is there. But I'm just kind of a little bit cautious around some of it because I feel like we still need better regulation to protect consumers. I think we still need regulation around the way that people are throwing all these terms around like ethical, ESG, green, sustainable, net zero. And we don't really yet have any kind of clear definitions of what net zero is. And for a normal person on the street, it is impossible to yeah. understand whether or not a company's PR department is putting that out because I think we need to protect consumers. And I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done there that will come. And I think we're at the beginning of that journey. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic but I still think we need to kind of set the parameters a little bit about throwing all these terms around and just expect people to, to understand what they mean or to be able to just use, use judgment to understand more about all of this. Yeah, Georg, I was actually going to ask you, there, there is a, a question in the show notes around talking about ethical, sustainable and governance and what they all mean. But I suppose from um, a more holistic level, what have you found that actually resonates with people who want to consume these sort of services? Is it ESG or actually is it something a little bit more tangible like, you know, we just don't want to deal with oil companies? I just wonder for you what's moved the needle. Yeah, I mean, we have been following this space for some time and I agree with Claire, it's early days. It's hard to make big kind of statements, but I'm, I'm very optimistic and because I see a lot of change. We had been watching the space for a time. We decided about a year ago to build this carbon footprint calculator and solution for banks, precisely because there was demand for it. Carbon conscious consumers have 
grown a lot. It's not a fringe movement anymore. Ten years ago, you thought of people chained to trees or something. Now it's a mainstream movement, and that's only going to increase. And people are realizing more and more that they can use the financial system or influence the financial system to make a difference, tell their pension fund to invest this sustainably, get green loans and, and products and, and so on. Also, another observation is that we see, I mean, banks are to a degree hurt animals. And it feels to me that there's a wave of kind of now it's real. Now it's potentially profitable. I think that's still jury is still out. But but to Matt's point, like one of the banks we work with issued green bonds, was surprised at how good they had the best funding they had ever had, like the most kind of best interest rates on, on those bonds, mm-hmm. which allowed them to offer green mortgages, green car loans at lower rates, but still at even or better profitability than their normal products, just because there was demand for it and people value it. And so that, that makes me really optimistic. I don't think that's a clear cut picture. Sometimes these things are maybe not more profitable or, or they are riding a lot on goodwill too, but the value dimension is coming there and that's huge. Mm. So I'm optimistic we'll see a lot of movement going forward. Matt, I wanted to ask you, not that I want to get into sort of going into definitions and all that sort of stuff too deeply, but what what constitutes, I suppose, a green bond in this context? So an investment in what kind of company? Because there's a lot of talk that, you know, for instance, the reason why green stocks or, you know, perceived green stocks has outperformed the market this year is because Tesla on everybody's metric is considered a green company, which may be the case, you know, they do things, you know, in a sustainable way, but it's not necessarily a company that you would associate fully with being, you know, fully sustainable. So I guess from your perspective, a green bond's been issued. What kind of investments are you looking into and what kind of companies, you know, are incorporated within that? The key thing about the green bond is you get a precise and you know externally evaluated, externally audited report on how that money has been used. So in other words, if you buy a green bond, let's say it's from the European Investment Bank or anywhere else, it will say, we're going to use this to invest in X or to do X. So for I give you an example of one that we did fairly recently, which was the proceeds from this bond were going to be used to do energy efficiency retrofitting on a huge number of apartment buildings in Bucharest, right? So from that, okay, that sounds very nice, but how do you know how green that is? You know, okay, it's energy efficiency. But with the green bond market now, what's important is that you get a very precise report that's audited and it tells you how many tons of carbon dioxide have been not emitted as a result of this, you know, what Mm. kinds of, all these metrics that you can then use to show your investors, if you're a pension fund or if you're a company, you can show that you've been investing in things that have done this. You can use it to offset what you've been emitting and so on. Those are the kind of very direct project-oriented things that the European Investment Bank uses them for, for example. And I think, you know, with Georg talking about the market and how it's growing, I think the key is that there are customers for this. So if you're a business and you want to be doing things now which will be profitable in the years ahead as we get more and more green and as as we get better regulation of this, as, as Claire was saying, then you want to be going in this direction. And I'll give you one statistic which will back that up. In our climate survey, we asked 30,000 people, 
with COVID, we're going to have a lot of spending to create a recovery. Do you want that to be a green recovery or do you just think recovery at all costs, spend it on whatever you like, I don't care, build it, even if it's emitting greenhouse gases. And even at this moment where people are in you know, a pretty tense situation, mm. we had 56% of people said they wanted a green recovery. And 44% said at all costs, just a recovery. So that's a pretty significant measure of the kind of market that there is, the kind of urge that people feel to have corporations and governments going in the direction of green right now. Yeah. And it, it speaks, I mean, at that point in terms of how do we recover post-COVID was actually one of the points that Prince William talked about to the IMF meeting this week. He specifically called that out. And I've heard that as well from other sustainability inputs and actually fund managers who are talking about where their money's going, what investments that they might be making across the last few months. Claire, I, I wanted just to ask you in terms of, I suppose, what, what we can do as a finance industry. We've got obviously, you know, institutional money, pensions, massive role in, I suppose, moving the needle on this. Do you see it as institutional money, I guess, needs to lead the way and, and that will be the only thing that needs to lead it? Or is it more that, you know, B2C, the way that I use my retail banking app, the understanding that what I pay for, you know, a pie that I buy from my local supermarket has got, you know, X carbon footprint associated with it because the supply chain is doing, is doing you know, X, Y, Z and is contributing to the environment in certain ways. What, what, what do you think carries more weight or as, actually is it, is it sort of both that is needed to be solved? It's a horrible question. No, no I think it's a really <laughs> interesting question. And I think actually I've got a good example because I think what we've really found as a direct-to-consumer business and, 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 and you know, in, in the pension space for pension providers, their customer is not the person on the street. It's not the saver. It's either an employer or it's an advisor. So you've got this disconnect between the needs, sentiments and desires of ordinary people who are saving for a pension. And then you've got something in between and then you've got the asset management industry. And there's no kind of two-way conversation going on between those two things. And they're a little bit disconnected. And I think something that we've tried to really do as a business is go to customers and find out what they really want and what they really expect their money to be invested in and then go back directly to the asset management industry and say, can we create this product? And we did that, as I said, with, with the fossil fuel free plan back in 2020, because, you know, our customers kept saying to us, we want out of oil, we want out of oil. And we went to the asset management industry and that product doesn't exist. Like it doesn't exist, like a mainstream product that's like a good value, comes in around the kind of what you'd be paying in a workplace scheme, diversified. It just didn't exist. And so we had to work for a year to get them to create that product so that can, you know, respond to the desires of those savers. And I think it's a really important point because at the moment we've got the asset management industry and they're not necessarily connected with what people want. And Make My Money Matter, which is Richard Curtis's campaign, I think is it has been really kind of important for people in terms of understanding the potential of pensions and the potential of kind of, you know, changing. I mean, it, it, pensions in the UK are worth seven trillion pounds. Yes. Seven trillion, <laughs> right? That's a lot of that's a lot of votes in companies, right? Yeah. We have the collective power through those pensions to shape the future direction of those companies and to move the dial and to turn those from bad corporate citizens to good corporate citizens and, and build the kind of world that, that we want to be part of. And and I think in order to do that, we need to we need to build those connections in people's minds. Yeah. Second horrible question coming to you. Because <laughs> I know most of these funds are pretty new. So the easy out is just to say we don't have this data yet. But I suppose that the metric 
that any pension fund is going to be measured by, or certainly top line is, you know, how much money is it made? How successful are these funds versus general funds at the moment? I know it's only been a couple of months or a few months. And if you don't have the info, then don't worry. But I am interested to know whether this is actually beating the wider market. It was interesting in 2020 when what we saw actually was in fact like most of the kind of, when we, when we look at the data, most of these sustainable indexes or these sustainable funds actually outperformed normal funds, funds that had oil in them. And that's because obviously the oil market, you know, and, and these funds were like heavily invested in technology companies and obviously technology companies were like, you know, gained in, in the last years, everyone online and also purposeful companies. So companies that had like better ESG, so environmental, social and governance scores also outperformed their peers because they are more resilient in times of trouble like we saw with the pandemic. And so I think actually, no, I don't think we need to have this this kind of old debate around compromising, you know, by, by investing in ethical or sustainable funds on performance. You've hit on something very important here, Adam, because what this is all about is about having a real market. You know, I mean, we use the example there of green bonds that are from the European Investment Bank. Well, the European Investment Bank is AAA rated, so you don't get a very high return. It's not a risk, right, to invest in, in one of our bonds yeah. at AAA. So, if you're going to have a proper market, you have to have high yield investments. You have to have more risk in some places. So, you know, that's one of one of the things that we've done is worked with the French management company Amundi for this. It's called the Amundi Green Credit Continuum, which is a very funky name. But basically what it is, is it's one billion euros that's going to be invested in high yield green bonds. So riskier investments because… yeah. You know, not everybody wants two or three percent, right? You've got to have something out there, and that's why creating this as a as a real market is what allows us then to to replace whatever is out there right now. As Claire has just been saying, no, I, th- I think you know, and obviously we work in long term savings, so you know, our customers are looking not only for kind of you know sustainable long term value in those companies, but they're also looking to make sure that those companies are not destroying the planet in the process so that they actually have somewhere to retire to. From our perspective, like we're really focusing on the long term. And and I think that's different to some of the investors that you see that are chasing those short-term returns to the detriment of planet and society. Yeah. And on that topic, no podcast at the moment on this topic is complete without mentioning Bitcoin and crypto. Georg, I was going to bring you in. I mean, I read somewhere that uh, the combined energy that powers the mining of Bitcoin, this is only Bitcoin as, uh, rather than the other currencies, is the equivalent of the annual production of energy in Argentina. Now, I don't know how much energy they use in Argentina, but that sounds a lot. Georg, I, I just wondered in terms of modern finance, cryptocurrency, I know there's a push with, even within that ecosystem to become more ethical. But what are your views on that? And you know, how much is this sort of a an unfortunate reaffirmation that that money matters more than anything else, or actually is there is that sentiment of you know this is damaging to the economy, you know, going to become a a really important factor in I suppose the, the future variants of crypto. Now you you bring up a point that is very often overlooked with with Bitcoin, the enormous energy intensity that it's an extremely inefficient system, and that like. The energy it takes to process just a single transaction is like ridiculous. So I think this is just overlooked. So this is one of the forces that I expect to grow stronger against Bitcoin going forward. This is a reason to be pessimistic on the future of Bitcoin. That's not necessarily applies to all crypto. There are much way more efficient computation wise cryptocurrencies out there. 
But the specific example of Bitcoin, at least in my view, and, and this is vastly kind of tainted by this extravagant energy usage, which I think will come haunted sooner or later. Yeah, for sure. Thanks very much for that. Uh, we're just going to take a quick pause right here before we get back to it to listen to our sponsor. 11FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost-efficient and transparent payment solution available in the market. Our brand new podcast is here. In Under the Hood, we lift the lid on the banking infrastructure that's shaking up the financial services industry. In partnership with Synapse, we'll explore a different area of banking tech every Thursday and talk to experts around the world. Head to your favorite podcast app and follow Under the Hood to catch the latest episode. And welcome back. Matt, just wanted to ask you a quick one. This is more around, I guess, the FS's industry drive, I suppose, at a geopolitical level. Mark Carney's just become the UN envoy for climate change. I guess from your perspective, can you see sort of a more macro shift at that level if we are putting in place, you know, really highly influential finance figures into these kind of positions within these kind of organizations? Is, is this, you know, because not only are we seeing it from a consumer perspective, like we've been talking about it, the market's also responding. But now actually, do we have to see these kind of figures in at the top level who've got that finance experience to be able to push this even further? I think we do. And I think we're seeing it at, at all kinds of levels, certainly in, in the EU structures as well, because you really need an economic understanding in order to be able to deal with climate change. It's, you know, we've gone past the stage where it's an issue for scientists or it's an issue for activists. It's now a matter of saying, basically, we agree and we need to put the money out there. So that's the stage we're at now. And that's why you see appointments like that. It's why multilateralism is so important in this, you know, it's really something that goes from the very top. So like, you know, big multilateral organizations, the European Investment Bank, you know, with enormous loans and so on, right the way down to, to very small startups. We need that whole economy to shift. And that has to be obviously an economic move. It's the economy. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's it's really makes sense that things are going in that direction. That's the, the phase we're at. That's where we are on the the curve of the fight, if you like, against climate change. Yeah. And I will just point to one article that came out over the last week. UOB, which is a quite a big bank over in, in Singapore, they've appointed a chief sustainability officer. I don't know many other organizations that have got one of those. I know there's a lot of banks, financial institutions that have got sort of, you know, sustainability, I guess, operations within, you know, the, the wider bank. But this was the first time I've ever heard of that role. I guess, Claire, maybe one for you. Is this, uh, do you see this becoming something of, of of a norm? And actually, when you look at the way that you guys have built Pension B, um, would you therefore see, you know, sustainability almost becoming part of, you know, at the product level, you know, you almost need an advisor at that, that sort of granular product level, or is it run by potentially a, a chief sustainability officer? And, you know, will this become the norm? You know, is this a new economy, as Matt was saying, that, that will flourish over the next few years? Yeah, look, I think it's fair to say now that all banks and asset managers have recognised climate risk as investment risk. And, you know, I think in 2021, we started to see the social and governance side of that really be built into kind of metrics around like, you know, long-term investment risk and where you've got companies that just don't act with trust or with any purpose, then there are going to be inherent risks around those companies. And and, and when they don't listen to their stakeholders and they don't deliver value to, to the communities in which they operate, then, you know, I think there are people out there that need to be calculating the material risks 
involved with investing in those type of companies. And so, so yeah, I think all companies are going to need this type of individual that's going to lead on that going forward. Yeah, it's a pretty cool gig, like to, to be involved in banking, in finance, but then have that kind of slant that, you know, you always have to look out for, you know, the sustainable impact of the product that you're developing actually would probably, I would imagine, be quite an attractive proposition to, to sort of young staff. Georg, I was going to come to you now. I mean, have, have you found that in the recruitment and the creation of your business? And, you know, how have people sort of come to you to try and get a job, I guess, especially, you know, the younger members of your team? And how attractive has, you know, sustainability been as a part of that? Yeah, very very attractive. I mean, we've always been a purpose-driven company. Our higher purpose has been to help people lead better financial lives. Now we've extended that to help people manage and understand the impact of their spending into sustainability. And that expansion has been welcomed by our employees, many of which kind of really value that aspect, that purpose-driven aspect. We also see that with the banks we work with, UOB is one of our customers. And we see in many banks, this role of the head of sustainability, maybe not, I don't know of any others where they've created that title, but it's certainly getting more prominent, the head of ESG, head of sustainability. Some of the, they're getting more bigger budgets. Some of the projects we are now doing with the carbon inside product to help people understand their carbon footprint in mm. the banking is with budgets from those new departments, not just from the traditional yeah. digital banking or marketing so so this is uh, this is having an impact yeah that's all because I, I did a podcast recently with a company called ecolytics who are in the visa partnership program they track carbon footprint of transactions and they were saying that when they were putting their proposition in front of banks it was still maybe 70 percent of those banks were like well i can't make money from this have, have you felt that same pain if you like or you know to, to your point just now are we getting over that and actually you know, because that's really interesting when you say things like, you know, there's new budgets being created specifically for this purpose. That's that's like a whole different like seismic shift in the way that you can approach this. It is. It is changing. And, and that's one of the reasons we got into this business, because it's it's a moneymaker. Yes, there are soft reasons like it's good to stick a stand on, on the environment and, and position that way and, and, and so on. But there is demand for this that is very, very clear. Like it's on the order of around two thirds in most countries, certainly in Europe. And it's not a European or Nordic or Northern European thing. It's a pretty global thing. And the pandemic has increased this. When we made this decision to build this over a year ago, we were worried that when the pandemic hit that this would go on the back burner. We found the opposite to happen. This kind of became higher on, on people's list. So, and, and many more and more banks only recently have introduced or are in the process of introducing those green products, green savings and like, like Claire is dealing with, also green mortgages and, and car loans funded mm. by green bond issuance where you have to funnel the funds into something that is sustainable. And uh, in some cases, there are good margins on these products. And if you help people understand their carbon footprint, if you target the carbon conscious segment, which is substantial, that's the optimal kind of cross-selling and, and, and context to recommend those products and get them out there. So this really is about increasingly as a hard, re very real business case. So so it is changing. Mm. That's cool. And uh, Claire, I just wanted to ask you, in terms of the way that you recruit at Pension B, do you think or c can you foresee that if companies, I mean, we'll talk about the financial industry, it's probably applicable wider, don't double down on this 
the uh, as in on you know sustainability and actually the way that they act rather than just what they produce but actually you know the way that they set themselves up do you see that you know in the future they might lose out on young talent you know is there um are you seeing you know young talent come through and asking specifically around things like you know the, the sustainable impact of pension b in terms of how you guys run you know run the company I, I wonder whether that's come up in any interviews certainly on the tech scene in, in london yeah so i think like you know our credentials in terms of offering the responsible plans we do and also being a responsible asset owner and steward of those assets so we're very vocal and we're very public about you know, supporting these big high profile shareholder resolutions and publicly calling out when asset managers are not voting to support them. So I think that that's kind of out in the public domain. I think what we see a lot more really is is more around social inclusion. And it's about building a fairer world. And I think when when people are looking for an employer, I think it's really they want to see that in action. So, of course, eventually, because our product is for everybody, we've built a business that reflects the rich diversity of the UK and, and, and more importantly, London, where we operate. So, you know, we are paying everybody at Pentaby at least the London living wage because we want to be a model corporate citizen and we want to lead by example. We also campaign for better social inclusion of all people in the UK, particularly women and people of colour who've been sort of undermined by systemic inequalities. And, you know, as part of that, we've made sure that we have complete gender parity across our business. And so we have more than 50% female representation on our senior management team and on our board. And we're also really proud that in our company, more than 40% of our pension B colleagues come from ethnically diverse backgrounds, which of course reflects the level of diversity in London. And I think those are the really important topics. Like, are we leading by example? And are we being a model corporate citizen? Because it's very well, you know, being an asset, a responsible asset owner and saying to, to other companies, they need to do these things, but you need to do them first yourself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, it's going to become more and more important as this topic gets more and more uh, critical in terms of the way the industry responds to it. And one of the factors of that is how you measure it. So I guess from a, a success perspective, Matt, I suppose, you know, you're sitting on, again, sort of an institutional view of this, but what does success looks like to you in terms of, you know, if you look at the next like five years maybe 10 years, but maybe that's aiming a bit too long, you know, in between that period, uh, what does success look like to you from, from the, the services that you guys provide? Uh, and what fundamental shifts do you want to see, you know, sort of over the, over that time period going forward? We do have targets for those periods that you just mentioned, because of course, it's a, you know, it's a huge uh, institution. So it's, it's like an ocean liner, you can't turn it around that quickly. We have by 2025, we're going to have at least 50% of what we do at the EU bank be specifically climate action or environmental sustainability. And then by the end of the decade, we will have supported 1 trillion euros of investment in climate action and environmental sustainability. When I say supported, what that means is we need to have the projects come to us or we can go and seek them out, but they need to come to us too from companies that are either expanding in this area or converting to this area or are startups in these areas because the our investment will not be one trillion our investment will be let's say the foundation stone of a total one trillion in investment that's our project i I'm optimistic, as I said earlier, because I know we can do it. We had a a similar kind of project in the two thousand fifteen to two thousand twenty which was the Juncker plan, essentially. It was, uh, well, it was a stimulus plan for the European economy. And there we had a, a, a 30 billion 
guarantee from the European budget. And we used that as the foundation stone for what turned out in the end to be 500 billion in investment over those five years. So over this decade, we don't have any time to waste, but at the same time, I'm optimistic that we can make that. We just need to have companies make the switch right now. And I think as as Claire and Georg have been saying that there is a recognition that responsiveness to, to social needs and environmental needs is a factor in competitiveness. And so when you're looking at what kind of people are going to come and work at your company, Mm. they're people who want to be, at the end of that 10 years, working for a place that is expanding and in the market that's on the way up. They don't want to be working for a company that in 2021 invested in a bunch of things that are now stranded assets because they've been banned. So I think that's clear that that's the way to go. Yeah, I mean, it, it is re- relatively finance, but I actually parked a car. I drive a diesel, not for too much longer, though, but I, I parked it today and I got an extra surcharge on that by the 50% on the parking. But you know what? I was actually happy to pay it, which is, which is I don't know where that money's going. I'm hoping maybe one of you three could, could tell me, but it was really interesting. I was like, wow, that's incredible that it's got down to that level. I thought it was great. Matt, yeah, do you know where it's going? <laughs> well, it's interesting that you're happy to pay it, is what I was going to say, because yeah. in our survey, we, we asked people, do you think you'd, you need strong government measures in order to get this to happen? And would you accept them? And 65% of people said yes. Mm. Yeah. And you're happy to pay your surcharge too. I will just say that I was on a, a long lease and next month it's going. But nevertheless, <laughs> just just in case that goes viral. I think this touches on a huge point. We said there is demand, but people need convenient solutions. They're willing to kind of do all sorts of things if it's convenient and, and, and easy. So there, there is still a gap between the demand. Everyone wants to do something about the environment and their ability to do it. So one measure of success is making those solutions profitable, yeah. creating value. Then if you f- fix the solution on a much broader scale than something unprofitable, can, that's the difference between charity and, and real progress. And another one that, that we see from the carbon footprint, so and, and that's just not Manika, that's also Ecolytic or MasterCard or others. The whole point of doing this in the digital bank, helping you keep track of it, is make it convenient. The problem with everyone is worried about their carbon footprint, but it's just too much of a hassle, too manual to go to some calculator. Even if I get a number, I don't know what it, under, what it means. So by making it super easy to understand and super easy to take action, surprisingly, many people will, will do that. So that, that would be another measure of success. Yeah. Can we drive advocacy through the financial service industry? Georg, just on that, how much do you think the services to the end consumer would improve once we can measure the supply chain? Because for me, that's quite a key thing, which is, you know, how do you get end-to-end visibility or what a customer, you know, Joe Bloggs does, what they interact with? How can they get a, a unit of measure, which is something which might change their behaviours, uh, but isn't so complex that they're like struggling to understand a new metric or, you know, a new sustainable metric? That's a key question because that is not an easy problem. All sorts of companies say I'm carbon neutral, but if you dig into their supply chains, they are absolutely not carbon neutral. And I think it was Tesco many years ago that tried to put a carbon emission label on products. They gave up after two years. It was both too much work for them. It was impossible to calculate. And, mm. and people didn't understand it. Half the people thought it would better to have a higher number. 
So I think that's a key element of what we are trying to do with Carbon Insight. First, give you a reliable, easy calculation that is seamless. It's always up to date. It's based on your spending. And most of your spending is where your emissions come from. It's not perfect. Yeah. It's an estimate. But the convenience thing, it's, it's, it's good enough. It's typically accurate within 20% or so, even compared to perfect information. But the key thing then is to help you understand what that means. If I estimate your carbon footprint to be 800 kilos, that doesn't tell you much typically or not at first. But if we put that in context to how many flights are that, how many trees, how does that compare to all sorts of things that you do understand? That, that's why Manika is uh, coming from PFM, where our core competence in helping people understand their spending, we felt we, had, we could contribute here by taking an automatic estimate and helping people understand it and making it also one click away to take action through certified offsetting projects okay. to take away friction, to put the things in front of people that they want to see. So we're very excited to see, can we multiply the number of people that actually offset their carbon footprint? Because getting to zero is neither desirable nor realistic and it's cheap to offset but really very few people do it they may do it one flight at a time because mm. it's there in front of them yeah Th- that's why it's so interesting to do it in your mobile bank because you can offset all your spending yeah in, in one go it's awesome i actually really like all right there's the sort of the differing opinions that we've got around not that you guys are conflicting at all but uh Georg, you're obviously looking at it very, very much from a b2c perspective i really i cannot wait for some of those solutions to sort of seep into you know my daily banking apps and you know whatever because yeah they're coming yeah I'm not, i can't tuned. wait i like I, yeah. i'm like i keep on uh I, i'm looking at the product roadmaps to see when when the big releases are coming um specifically around this topic i think it will personally i think it will really move the needle as a, as a product build i'm looking forward to that okay i wanted to bring you in just as a last word uh, from a fintech perspective perspective we are we are generally aligned to the fintech industry the last couple of weeks 15 uk ceos uh, several notable fintechs such as starling ocarlos revolus wise habito uh, etc have joined forces to create a tech zero task force with shared commitments for environmental goals like reaching net zero carbon emissions etc across the tech industry I wanted to ask you in terms of bringing it back sort of very local what can the the fintech business do and i suppose you know to be the flag bearers on this you know we've got yourselves we've got georg on here like we've also got Matt, who's got sort of a different viewpoint from an institutional perspective. But, you know, we, we shout quite loud in the fintech industry. You know, is, is is it a case that we just need to continue to shout or are bodies like this, which have been set up and, you know, and, and initiatives like this actually, you know, a, a significant factor in, in terms of moving the needle? Yeah. I mean, going back to the point I made earlier around like goodwill and willing, like, you know, I think it's fantastic they're doing that. I think we just still need these basic parameters around the definition of net zero. And I would like to see that group pushing for them because I think it's in their interest and it's in the interest of the planet and, and and everybody that we get those standards set up so that you know we all have faith in them and we all understand what what net zero really means yeah that's a good shout and on that note we will end there thanks so much you guys for joining me it feels like it's gone really really quickly but I actually really enjoyed that some awesome stuff being said over this pod I'm going to go around each of you just however you want to be contacted <laughs> or if you don't want to be contacted just say no comment but uh, whatever your preferred method of contact is let me know uh, Matt starting with yourself so I'm on Twitter at EIBMAT, E-I-B-M-A-T-T. You can also subscribe to the Climate Solutions podcast on Apple, Spotify, Acast, everywhere else. And the climate survey that I've been talking about, all the 
data and all the results, and there's lots of them, are on eib.org, eib.org. Cool. Uh, Claire, how about about yourself? Yep. So you can find out a lot more about us, our mission, our approach to ESG, and our product on www.pensionb.com. You can find us on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, LinkedIn, and I think now TikTok as well. Oh, wow. There you go. Wasn't expecting that. I think that's a first. It might be a first. Georg, how about yourself? Yes, Manika is online too. So manika.com, M-E-N-I-G-A.com. Our Carbon Insight product is there featured quite prominently. Personally, yes, I'm on Twitter. My handle is my first name, G-E-O-R-G. That's George with except no E in the end. And my first letter of my last name, L. So Georg L. Cool. And I'm on Adam D.A. at Twitter. And obviously, you can find myself and all my colleagues at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better uh, and helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much for you guys for turning up today. Really enjoyed that. Uh, And we'll see you next time.